Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting, and I'm a little embarrassed sometimes by how frequently I get to know great musicians from watching television. Like, that does not seem like the way I should get to know who they are, and yet. So that's why it's such a pleasure to talk to this week's guest, who I am ashamed to admit I only got to know when he became the band leader and music director on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, the CBS late-night talk show that is probably my favorite of the traditional late-night talk shows running right now. The guest this week, John Batiste, he is the guy that's always playing the music in the show when you watch it, you know, when it comes back from commercial and somebody's playing the song and or when the guest is coming out and the band is playing the song. That's that's John. He's the guy out there, out in front, making that music happen. But one of the things that I, I sort of have learned since first finding out about him on Late Show is that he is this tremendous musician who I actually liked on another television show. He was in the cast of the show Treme for a few seasons as a musician there, and that's another great music show. So thank you, television, for letting me get to know John Batiste because I really love his music. It's piano heavy. He is a, a musician who primarily focuses on the piano, though he knows many other instruments. You know, it's jazz, but with sort of that bluesy feel to it that you're just going to suddenly know I know so little about music the longer I keep talking about it. But that's how I would describe it as a complete neophyte. And here's a clip. This train has left the station. Who knows what destination? This love is for the taking. Don't His new album, Hollywood Africans, is out on September 28th. I've gotten an early listen. I really love it. It's full of wonderful takes on some songs you may have heard before, like What a Wonderful World and Smile, the Charlie Chaplin song, and the song from the first level of Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm not kidding you. That is on this album. But it's also got some original compositions from him. And I think that if you are a fan of music, going to like this album. But I also think if you're a fan of, you know, this podcast, you're going to like this conversation that I had with John. He really digs into his influences, how growing up in New Orleans and then, you know, spending his young adulthood in New York has influenced his sound and what you have to do to put together music for a TV show, you know, like about 12 hours before that TV show airs. So it was a great conversation. Please stick around because you're going to find it fascinating. I, I promise. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really love the album. It's it's terrific. Listen, one of the things I like about it is it's a mix of original and cover compositions, and then some of the originals have like little hints of other songs in them. Tell me when you're making an album like this, 
sort of how you zero in on like what songs are going to be in the mix between your own compositions and then like the compositions of others that you just are really drawn to and want to uh, put your own spin on. You got to follow the spirit. The moment tells you what to do. We made this album in a way that was very organic. You know, um, T-Bone Burnett and I met at a party um, in 2013. It was actually Bono's birthday party. And there were several musicians there Mm -hmm. across the spectrum of music. And, um, of course, that makes you want to talk about music. So T-Bone and I talked about the history of American music that night for, you know, a while, sure. maybe like an hour or so. And then we, we kept in contact. And about two years after that, we met in New Orleans. And the idea when we went into the studio was first for us to collaborate on different things that we had been talking about, but to really just channel some of the forgotten lineages of American music. And um, I literally sat at the piano and we cut the lights off for three days and you know most of the stuff is one take of me performing just whatever stream of consciousness whether it be an original song that I've been working on or um, something that I've been playing since I was a child Mm, excellent I'm gonna pursue that further but I want to go back and just like ask what is Bono's birthday party like (laughs) that sounds like something uh, I will never get to go to so I want to be like taken inside that room well it was something that um I went to as a performer, he was actually being surprised by many performers who would come up and play a song Mm -hmm. and then join him at a table. And once you join him at the table, um, the curtain closes and someone else goes on stage and then the curtain opens and, oh, look, it's Herbie Hancock. Oh, it's Pharrell. (laughs) I'm like literally Pharrell performed before me. And as I was performing, Herbie is sitting in the front row next to Bono and they're just looking right up at me. And I'm like, whoa, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of my heroes is right there. So, you know, it's just um, great. It was a great experience just to be in the room with so many of the people who um, had shaped music, and T-Bone being one of them, we we really hit it off. That was the first time we met. So after I performed, we sat at the table, and I sat next to T-Bone. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, then inside, there were a lot of great conversations being had, one of which was just the one where we started to kind of the genesis of this project really, Mm, you know? Sure. Sure. So it sounds to me like just the way you recorded this album, but also I know you've done other albums you recorded on subways. You've done, I mean, you're, you're performing in a daily TV show. Like it sounds to me like the immediacy of music is something you're really interested in. The idea of like capturing a specific performance, if that makes sense. What appeals to you about that idea of like capturing a performance in the moment instead of, you know, layering a ton of production onto it. You know, there's something special about every moment. Life is so precious and we're here for a short while and things are very, very fleeting. Um, So if you can capture a true moment of joy or a true moment of um, expression, human expression and connection Mm -hmm. and share that, that's a beautiful thing. And there's not really that many mediums to do that in such an authentic way music, photography, the moment really being captured in a way where it's almost like you're there and being able to revisit that emotion 
it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I aspire to one day to craft an album that um, you construct mm-hmm. <laughs> and build. But um, I think my past work and this one in particular is just all about capturing a time and a place and really paying homage to the lineage of great African-American performers, but in general, writing the next chapter of where that lineage is going. Right, right. I think that's really fascinating the way you put that like, and, and profound because like every time you hear someone perform a song, like it's going to be slightly different and that moment is sort of lost to you after it's done. And like that's a kind of an interesting and sad, but also like, like really exciting thing to be able to experience that. So how do you um, decide when you want to freeze a moment, if that makes sense? When you're like, okay, yeah, we need to get this on an album in some capacity. It's the goosebump effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there are certain moments on the album where I was in a trance. You know, we, we, we went into the studio and um, Zora Neale Hurston, who is an, a great American figure, right. a literary figure, mm-hmm. she wrote a poem about Hyde John the Conqueror, which is kind of a spirit. And T-Bone sent me that as a piece that we both had, um, it was a consensus that that was kind of what we wanted to do. Mm. And we sent each other some literature and, and that stood out to me as kind of what we were trying to capture as the overall moment, mm. um, if that makes any sense. Um, the moment of the album mm. in time was connected to all of those things mm. mm-hmm. from the past. Mm. So really, you know when you want to capture a moment if it zeroes in on that energy. There's a bigger energy out there. And um, if it taps into that in any way, that's that's what you want to put on wax. Do you think there's a way to tap into that energy on command? Like, is there a way to summon the muse, as it were? Or do you have to kind of wait for that moment? You know, it's a special thing. Some of us are um, more tapped into this ever-flowing greater consciousness that comes from God. It's this thing that's in in the atmosphere and you mm-hmm. can dip into it. It's like a stream. Some of us are more tapped into it than others to be able to dip in at will. Others, it comes, you know, in a moment. And um, if you're not ready for it, then it'll go to someone else. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's really just about being aware that that's going on. And I feel like we, you know, we're in a culture where we don't really always respect the fact that there's a world that we don't see Mm. that governs the world that we do. Mm. Well, tell me about the name of the album, Hollywood Africans, because uh, it seems to me like that's sort of tapping into these things you've talked about wanting to capture in the album. Well, I'm kind of riffing on a a term that Jean-Michel Basquiat Mm. coined in his 1983 work and it was kind of about the marginalization of African Americans and the entertainment business as well as the innovations that they've contributed and being a part of that lineage I wanted to speak on that but not from a place where it's necessarily an indictment but more stating that we've come to this place and overcome so many things because the lineage is divine and is put in us from the beginning of time to be able to share this no matter what obstacles are in the way of it. Mm. And it's all about bringing people together. It's not about one group being better than another. The end result, no matter what negativity 
breeded these art forms and this this culture, no matter what was in his way, the end result has been bringing people together and yeah. uplifting humanity. So, and, mm. and and that's what I wanted to do with this music. You know, you listen to it, you can cry some songs, you can dance to some songs, you can meditate to some of the songs. It's just a very, it's the range of culture and emotions. Yeah. You know, when you talk about how you really respect Herbie Hancock like that, does not surprise me. But then you bring up like Zora Neale Hurston and uh, Basquiat, and I'm like, that is not something I would have expected. So who are some of the other like unlikely influences on your work, like people who've really inspired you to make this album or to make others who maybe our listeners would be surprised by? Oh, wow. I mean, there's so many different things that I read or, or just um, the environment is full of inspiration. Um mm. Especially, you know, now that I'm doing the show and I'm in New York, but the show has a range of people come through mm-hmm. who are from all walks of life. And it's like every day is a master class in mm. terms of how you can choose to live your life and um, use your time, you know. Mm. So I, I kind of just keep my antenna up and really learn from anybody. You know, there's people who I've been inspired by who nobody would know that I've grown up in Louisiana, just seeing the way that they approach life and their approach to that informs a musical decision that I'll make. Or, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just thinking of people now. There's a guy um, who I grew up with who he played several instruments. He was self-taught, and he never was a professional musician. But um, just his, his approach to music was so free, and um, it really broke me out of thinking about music in terms of genres at a very early age because I was around him when I was a kid. Mm. But just things like that, you know, I just like to like to um, steal from everybody, man. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you have to if you're gonna if you're gonna make anything great. Um, and one of the things like that that sort of dovetails nicely with that I was going to ask you about is the first song on the album is called uh, Kenner Boogie. And I presume it's named after your hometown of, of Kenner, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and, and not the toy company. Um, and, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I'm wondering, like, like Kenner is in the New Orleans area. New Orleans is, of course, a great like music city, historically significant music city. And Kenner is not, you know, on that sort of on that level when we think of great music cities. Tell me about like what Kenner means to you as, you know, a foundation point for your own career, but also like bringing it into this album as sort of the starting point for this album. Kenner is the underdog, you know, Mm -hmm. you hear about New Orleans and New Orleans is a incredible bed of culture and um, just is an unbelievable anomaly in terms of the history of America. Mm-hmm. Kenner is, is, is just like a a small town, you know. It's a small town outside of New Orleans that people don't really talk about. And there's some amazing things that go on that even New Orleans takes credit for, like the airport is in Kenner. <laughs> but this is New Orleans International Airport. I mean, <laughs> that's like a, that encapsulates the whole thing. So, yeah. I mean, I rep New Orleans. My lineage is from New Orleans and my family's generations of New Orleans musicians. And my mother's side is generations of people from New Orleans and Louisiana surrounding area. And, you know, that's my heritage. But I like to talk about Kenner just as a statement of, um, it's more like, you know, I'm the underdog. I like yeah. to always push like I'm the underdog. Yeah, yeah. You talking about how there was this this lineage of of 
musical performers when you were growing up there in Kenner? Like, what are your memories of for your sort of your first steps into performing music as, as a child, as a teenager, things like that? Well, I would be doing a lot of things with my family's band and also Funny enough, I would play video games a lot. And the difference with my upbringing and someone else who grew up in a small town like Kenner is that I would be going to New Orleans every night and performing <laughs> with some of the greatest musicians in, in in our time, which is a you know something I didn't think was abnormal. But I would also go back to Kenner and have a, a pretty normal side of my upbringing, which was playing video games and playing basketball. Uh, tennis and chess and things like that and playing video games was actually some of my first experience with transcription and um, composing and and band leading I would you know transcribe music that I would actually hear on video games and Mm. we'd play them live with my cousins in our junior band it was the family band and then the junior band would play a lot of video game themes (laughs) What, what were your favorite video game themes to play Oh, wow. Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, Actually, there's (laughs) a song on the album from Sonic the Hedgehog's uh, first level, Green Hill Zone. It's crazy thinking back to how much that's influenced me because at the time it was just something that, you know, I was absorbing because we play hours of video games. Final Fantasy VII is another Mm -hmm. score and also just the game is one of my favorites. I'm a diehard Final Fantasy VII fan. (laughs) Um, You know, just things, things that sticking your subconscious and you don't know how they're going to come out 10 years later I'm at Juilliard and you know doing my composing class I'm I'm dealing with themes in a way that's like um, Yoko Shimomura's vibe yeah (laughs) what what is it that makes a a piece of music or you know from a video game theme to like uh, some of the songs on here like uh, What a Wonderful World or Smile or like these these really famous songs from American history like what is it to you that makes a song stick out what makes a theme memorable to you well when you hear a melody that is not only singable but it it has a sense of place Mm -hmm. it puts you in a place when you hear it like um the Star Spangled Banner, for instance, it puts you in a place. Right. But there's certain melodies, even if they're not connected to any sense of nationalism, you know, agnostic melodies that just have a feel. And then if it's not the melody, there's words that really tell a story. And sometimes the music can um, almost distract from the words. You know, there's a few songs on the album where I strip back the music to let the narrative speak. Mm. And I think that's another way of reimagining a song and kind of getting the most out of it, just getting the juice out of it, is really taking the song and looking at it from different angles and what parts of it haven't been explored. You know, let's let's recast it. Yeah. Would you say that Wonderful World is is a song like that for you? Because I was really, like that song has been done so many times by so many different artists in so many different ways. And I, I loved your version. And like, it's a song that can be corny and your version is not corny. It's very sincere. So was that like the approach you took to ta- tackling like this huge song everybody knows? Exactly. Just the idea of the song being something that people know is one thing and then really looking at it and seeing a different side of it. It's like a person, you know, there's people who can become synonymous with certain activity or or they're a certain type of persona, but there's always a deeper layer, you know, and um, 
I feel like with Wonderful World, Louis Armstrong was somebody who kind of, people saw him as this really happy guy who he had a another layer that wasn't in the public that I think was, um, if you study, you know, some of his letters or if you, you know, listen to some of the recordings, he would actually record himself walking around his house, talking to his wife. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that song and him and his music represent a lot to me in terms of um, optimism and possibility. And I heard that song for years and I always heard that in the song. So mm-hmm. I decided to make it into a meditation. So when we play it live, I actually encourage the audience to close their eyes and listen to it. It's, it's meant as a meditation on the lyrics and on the world outside of all the things that, you know, we've done to the world. <laughs> Human yeah. beings have done some stuff, but the, the majesty and the divinity of the world is something to meditate on every now and then to get perspective. Would you say you you trend more toward uh, that optimistic side or more toward the side that sees all the horrible things that we've done to the world? <laughs> well, it's it's um you can't look away from the things that are going on. Right. But mm-hmm. I think I'm more of the optimistic side simply because if you don't have a sense of optimism, it's easy to get caught in a spiral of negativity. Mm. So mm. for me, optimism is not necessarily always realism. But I think it's of a useful device not to be realistic all the time. Yeah, yeah. When you're looking at a song like like Wonderful World or a song like Smile, or you have a whole album of of Christmas music, and like these are songs that again have been interpreted so many times by so many different artists. How do you know that there's another side there that you can explore? If that makes sense, like is it just intuitive, or or is there like kind of a, a almost a a weird math to it? Well. If um if you think about somebody like Johann Sebastian Bach, who is probably one of the best at what he does, like if you want to talk about the best person at a thing in history, mm. <laughs> he's in the running for that. Yeah. <laughs> so and and he was extremely mathematical at the same time as mm-hmm. he was um deeply spiritual and um. I think the two always at the highest level of a thing coexist. Um, Interesting. There's always going to be some sort of um, component that is not explainable by um, logic mm-hmm. or symmetry. But then there's always going to be a way at the same time to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. not fully, maybe not fully. But when I'm looking at a piece of music, I'm thinking about, Okay, what is it that I want to say? Like, what is the emotion? Uh, you can't calculate the emotion. But mm-hmm. then there's certain things, once you study the science of music and frequency, that certain chords um, resonate in a certain way. Yeah. Certain intervals make you feel a certain way. There's just a certain sense of connectivity to both. Mm. That's one of the things I love about music is that there's sort of the the element of, yes, the the free-floating spiritual aspect of listening to music that connects all of us but then also like there's this rigid theory underneath it of keys and chords and things like that like when you think about like I know you know a lot of music theory but like how much do you pay attention to that sort of structural stuff when you're writing your own composition or or working on somebody's somebody else's like or does it just sort of float away after a point I mean not at all I don't think about it at all Mm, I think the point is to 
use it as a tool, but I think for it to be the guiding force is is wrong. Um, mm. That's counterintuitive to what music and expression is. And if you're trying to capture the moment, oftentimes when I'm inspired and I'm writing, it's a flood. Um, mm. and, and then that is me in a space where I'm dipping into that stream um, and and I get as much as I can. And then when you're organizing it later or you're trying to fix something or, or you're trying to address something that you want to want to change, that's when you can start to um, put more of a uh, construction hat vibe on. But I, I don't I don't like to. Uh, that's not really my vibe at yeah. the beginning. We talked a little bit about your upbringing before we sort of got on this, and like I, 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 you do come from a very musical family, and obviously you love music, but like, uh, is is there a way when you're in a very musical family to to like not love music? Like, when did you know you loved music yourself instead of just like this is what my family does? You know? Well, it's funny, man, because I didn't really think about myself as a professional musician or even aspiring to be one mm-hmm. until you know I was 17 and I was in New York and I was doing it. I was, mm. you know, it was literally a um, realization that I had. I was like, wow, I'm in New York and I have a band, you know, <laughs> professional music. <laughs> Before it was like, oh, okay, my dad plays and my mother was uh, the, the, the driving force of me switching from the drums to the piano. And mm-hmm. I was taking lessons, doing the piano thing, and I was also doing a bunch of other stuff. But then, you know, by the time I was in high school, you know, there's these great, I would call them like village elders who taught most, if not all, of the music community mm-hmm. in New Orleans. These four huge figures in my life, you know, Edward Keir Jordan, the late Clyde Kerr Jr., Alvin Batiste, you know, these people, and Ellis Marcellus, they, they, they just, you know, they really taught me how to find my voice. Alvin Batiste showed me how to be an original. Yeah. And that was when I was like 15. So that was inspiring to, you know, be around that. But I didn't know that I would be a musician. I mean, I thought everybody played, you know. In New Orleans, everybody plays an instrument. I mean, it's like the milkman. The, the drug dealers, yeah. <laughs> they pull out a trumpet. <laughs> hey, man, I went to high school with you. You remember? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's like, you want to buy a bag? I'm cool. <laughs> I'm cool. You still playing the music? Yeah, I'm still playing. I'm playing. Yeah. Oh, that's good, man. It's like, wow. <laughs> is there something about New Orleans other than the fact that, like, everybody there is a musician, like you say, but is there something about it that made it, it makes it a particularly fertile ground for that sort of creativity i guess there's a big like there were so many cultures floating through there for hundreds of years that's probably part of it it's crazy man it's a spiritual thing because if you look back at the history of it being the biggest port city in the world at that time and then you have all these influences coming in and out and the style of um, french colonization and the congo square influence that the slaves brought the culture from africa Mm. (laughs) and built that into their um, communication and our our culture is built on that. Mm-hmm. Imagine a couple hundred years of just like <laughs> melding and it builds and grows and evolves and then it's just, it sticks. And, and, you know, by the time 
somebody like me comes around, you know, it's just a part of everyday life that um, I'm eating cuisine that has all these influences. The architecture has all these influences. I'm hearing sounds and rhythms, all these different things that are just like a part of our life now. It's unbelievable that that's, it happened in that way. It's almost like a microcosm of how global and connected the world is right now. But imagine, you know, 1700s, you, you know, there wasn't a place in the world like that. Yeah. Yeah. It it sounds like you've lived in New York almost as long as you were living in, in New Orleans. And I'm wondering like, how is the musical energy in New York, another great music town? Like, how is it different? It's a global city in um in that way that New Orleans is much more insular. It's a community and everybody knows each other, whereas New York is so big. Mm-hmm. In its stature, you'd imagine that it's like the size of California. But it's you can you can get yeah. into anything, man. You can you can literally get into anything at any time. The access is crazy. When I moved here, I was seventeen trying to figure it out. And I, I, I'll tell you what, man, it it was a lot to um, absorb. Yeah. Do you uh, remember sort of like when you first started to feel like you were getting your hands around it or your head around that idea of like this giant city that, to use the cliche, never sleeps? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sleeping. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to figure out um, how to put my band – together and put my music together and my voice of as an artist and um, what I wanted to be about. And I really just found that through constant exploration, you know, Mm -hmm. if there was some sort of um, musical experience to have, I wanted to have it. Mm. There was some sort of artistic experience going on. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to blend the different mediums, dance and and drama and and eventually, you know, getting into fashion and that's kind of how I discovered my fashion sensibilities and all of these different things that um, really happened in New York. I'd say probably around the time I was uh, 24, 25, I started to really get a grip on it. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a great time. You know, I was touring the world and, and really seeing all of the, the, um, other parts of the world as well as living in New York. So coming back to New York after being in Europe for like a month Mm -hmm. or, you know, being in South America is just like, you know, 24, 25 years old. That's a lot of great material to um, filter through your art. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, your band was famous for performing live performances. You recorded an album on the subway, as I mentioned. I don't know if you still have much time for that because your schedule is very busy, but like, what do you get out of that? Like just being out in on the street performing music or in the subway performing music or something like that? It's real. Mm -hmm. People are for real, man. Mm -hmm. It's like you look at people in the eye and you're like, wow, this is for real. This is like life. You know, you, the further away from that you get, the more dangerous it is for you and your art. And who you are as a person in general. And music being a part of the fabric of everyday life is something that I always want to represent with my music. It's in the community. If we're in New York, that's in the subway. If we're in New Orleans, it's on the street doing the second line. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's wherever we go, let's create that sense of community and, and go and build on what's there and um, contribute something. You know, I've seen people when we played on the train 
that are just like um, completely uplifted. You know, it's something special about it that um, when you go and somebody doesn't expect you to treat them, it's not like we're, um, you know, first they think we're buskers and then we're like, no, we, we're not asking for money. We just want to play mm. um, for, for you and, um, and connect, you know. So um, to me, that was a great summer. We just graduated from Juilliard and, you know, we'd have conversations about how we'd get our music out to people that, you know, wouldn't think to come to um, a live experience or come to see us play at like a Carnegie Hall or something like that, you know, like a music venue or a club. How do we just get to where the people are, you know? Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. You guessed it. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Well, I do want to ask you a couple questions about The Late Show because I've covered TV for many years and I realized I don't know a lot about like what goes into that. So so take me through like a day working on the show as the band leader, as the music director. Like what does your day look like? What do you sort of have to get done before the recording? It's long. <laughs> it's a long day. Yeah. So um, and it's not long um, except um, for once it, really kicks off it yeah. it feels longer than it is i'll say that so and that's a good thing because um it means i'm engaged mm-hmm. <laughs> i always want to be engaged and the thing about the show is every single day it's new yeah we're in the same building but every single day there's something that you know i mean happens in the world i'll say so yeah. we have to make sense of it in the morning there's like a pitch meeting with the writers and, and then steven they decide what they want to write about. Mm. During that time, you know, um, this is after early morning, they've digested the news and I'll come in after that and I'll start to kind of get a sense of, you know, just the what buzzing around the buildings and what people are talking about. Yeah. And we have to clear songs for use. So if you listen to a lot of the selections I make, I try to make um, <laughs> a lot of um, commentary on the jokes and on what's happening in the world or commentary based on the guests. So I'm crafting that after I get a sense of what the day will be about. Right. Now what, what generally happens is, um, you know, it changes and all the while I'm composing, you know, three or four pieces every day, brand new for the band to play during the commercial breaks Mm. for the audience. And you'll hear some of that on the air as well. So there's a mix of me referencing things that are going on in the show or stuff that's going on in the world and original compositions. And then by 2.30, you know, we're getting prepped for rehearsal. I probably have a lot of meetings with my producer, Dan Fetter, and, you know, Marissa Mullen will be there, who's uh, my creative coordinator, Mm. executive assistant. We'll talk about, you know, everything that's happening on the show or stuff that's happening around the show or maybe there's like a digital bit that I have to do. I recently did a bit with Dua Lipa in the elevator, which if we have a day like that, you know, I'm doing a bit 
before we go to rehearsal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, you can imagine what that is like. There's yeah. a lot of uh, intensity to get it really in the can and a um, couple takes. So then we go on stage. And by then, something else probably has happened in the world because the news cycle is basically hourly these days. Yeah. <laughs> And everything that I may have prepared and gotten pre-cleared and got licensed to play and everything could change. Yeah. So so after we rehearse the script, usually they go to um, rewrite and they have like a really short window to rewrite the show or finish the show. And during that time, I'm in hair and makeup, wardrobe, and also band rehearsal, mm. believe it or not. <laughs> mm. we, have, uh, we have to squeeze in band rehearsal. Which um, at this point, you know, it's like um, you have to learn the material within 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and um, sometimes we'll squeeze that in in the morning if we want more time. But in general, we've gotten so quick, man. It's yeah. incredible the, the speed at which we learn music. To me, it's like I'm always saying faster, faster, faster. But then if I think about it in retrospect, I don't really know a band that can learn music as fast as this band. It's unbelievable. It's the, the range of stuff we play. And, I mean, we play, you know, talking about Bach. We played Bach yesterday. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like some stuff we play is not just um, top 40, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so then that's all leading up to taping the show. And then we'll do the show, which is like Paul Mercurio comes out and warms up the house. Then we'll come out and play like a short set. Then Steven will come out and he'll play what is a, it's, it's not a set. It's really him feeling the audience kind of like a um, Q&A. Yeah. And, and that's like um, right before we tape. So then we tape and that's about an hour and 15 minutes. And by seven o'clock, there's um, a meeting with me and Steven and the, the executive producers of the show and the writers and talent department, which we call a postmortem. And that's the day. Yeah, amazing. Has there been a time when you've had to tear apart all the music you've done because something has changed in the news or you like need to really rethink what you're doing for the show? Not the whole set, but pretty much every day there's like a, <laughs> a song we may have like cleared or learned. Or, and a lot of times I'm very spontaneous too, which is um, sometimes it ta- it's, it's a risk <laughs> because um, <laughs> I'll play something that we didn't have pre-cleared and I'll try to clear it before we go to the air. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, you don't want licensing issues with major network. <laughs> that's, that's a bad idea. So I, I try not to do that. But uh, in general, you know, I'm, I'm very spontaneous and I have a bank of things that I feel will be appropriate at some point. And it's kind of like free association. I have a trunk full of things. I have things that I've heard that we probably will reference and I improvise using these elements. Yeah, yeah. So you talked a lot about feeling that connection with the audience. Like, how does that change when you're on a a television show, both when you're performing live and people come out to see you live, but also, like, when you're on the show? Can you feel that connection going out through the airwaves? It's different because on the show, like I said, I'm commenting on what we're talking about, what the conversation is, and what Stephen is is kind of leading the charge on with the the monologue. Mm -hmm. But I'm also... As in a play, I'm playing interstitial music, which the function of that is different to if you were to see me on stage doing a show. Now, the interesting thing is I've had to learn to kind of shift between these different roles, which is one, mm. you know, I'm, I'm, I may be um, 
commenting on something through a, a phrase of maybe like, yeah, woo. Yeah. You know, it's a certain kind of thing. This in the tradition of these kind of shows. Mm-hmm. And then I'm creating music that is also a part of the fabric of the show and the energy of the show. And that kind of subliminally influences the mood of the show and where it's going. And then I'm also performing for the house, which is four or 500 people in the Ed Sullivan Theater during the commercial breaks, we're playing like a set of music. So for them, I'm connecting on the commercial breaks in a way that's amazing. But then on air, I'm connecting with people in interesting ways. Sometimes people will write me letters or, you know, even tweet at me and ask, what was that song? Uh, I saw what you did there. And and this is it's a different kind of connection because it's over TV. Yeah. But there's definitely um, a beautiful thing there that I've, I've, I've grown accustomed to. Yeah. Well, we're kind of heading into the the end of the show, but I do want to ask you, like you, through the course of your career, you've performed with so many other great musicians. Do you have particular memories when you were like, I can't believe this is my life. I can't believe I get to perform with this person. Man, so many. I'm very (laughs) blessed. It's amazing to think about some of the stuff that's going on. I mean, it's just like thinking back to when I was 21 Mm. and I performed with Prince on tour. And it's like we're playing in MetLife Stadium. Mm. He did a short tour and um, to play with Prince. And, and, you know, two years before that, I had really just discovered him and was transcribing his record Mm. and uh, transcribing Dirty Mind (laughs) and uh, trying to create music influenced by that on, like, um, the the keyboard in my dorm room and Mm. then, like, I'm in the stadium playing with him Mm. or, you know, just thinking about the range of people that I've played with and learning from them kind of being a sponge. You know, we, we started the show out, with, we played with Yo-Yo Ma, mm. and that was amazing because he's one of the greatest at what he's done ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of who else I would say is. I'm thinking also just Stevie Wonder. I mean, I guess that's cliche because no, everybody's great. favorite musician is Stevie, mm. but... <laughs> When we did the national anthem together the day before Election Day on national TV, and he's playing the harmonica, and I'm playing the harmonica board, which Mm. is, you know, basically it's a melodica, but I picked the instrument up as a way almost to um, not be in the same lane as Stevie with the harmonica, (laughs) but do my own (laughs) version of that. And I'm playing with him during the national anthem at such a heavy moment in American history. Just the, that was incredible. Yeah. I've never gotten to perform with Stevie Wonder, so I think that sounds great. <laughs> we we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions, so I'm going to ask you a couple of those. And the first is, whether it's a movie you've seen or a TV show you've watched or album you've listened to, just like what's the last pop culture thing that you did and what did you think of it? Mm, last pop culture thing I did, I'd say is I do a lot of pop culture stuff. Yeah. What's the last thing I did? Or if it's a game you're playing, you know? Uh, I went to see, um, does a movie count? Yeah, movie counts, Absolutely. Okay, so what if it's like Crazy Rich Asians? That's great. That's great. What'd you think of does it? Does that count? Yeah, it does. What, what'd you think? I thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing stuff that I can just kind of, you know, 
be a uh, human. Yeah. <laughs> and relax. I, I'm not in front of the camera. Yeah. I'm not. <laughs> I don't have a responsibility to make you feel good or happy or anything. I'm yeah. just chilling. <laughs> so you do, you, do you go to the movies to sort of get that escape? Oh my goodness! I see so many movies. Mm. It's like um, that's why I was like, I'm trying to think of what's the last. But uh, of course, it, movies are just kind of a great thing because it's dark in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I won't say whether it happened or not, but you know, sometimes um, Colbert and I may or may not go to theaters <laughs> in the dark and see movies. Oh wow! And and check them out. You know, yeah. in the dark, you don't know who it is. Well, hoodies, boom. Yeah. <laughs> what's your What's your favorite movie? Forrest Gump. Okay, interesting. Why that one? I love the the feeling that I get when I watch it. I don't think that there's been a movie that, because um, to me it's all about escapism at a certain point with movies. It's like, mm. I love movies that have a message too, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. there's like something about Forrest Gump that's is surreal mm-hmm. and it's nostalgic, but it also has a message and it's like epic. Mm. The score is great. It's in the South. In, yeah. I mean, just, I love it. Mm. It's historic. Yeah, it's a great yeah. film. What can you say? Yeah. And then finally, uh, whether it was for the company or for the quality of the food, what what's your favorite, most memorable meal you've ever eaten? Ooh. Probably McDonald's. Really? Interesting. Why do you say that? Oh, my goodness. Mm. Well... Memorable. It's not for the quality of the food. I can uh, attest to that. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, uh, McDonald's is just like when I would tour back in the in in my first few runs of touring, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we'd go to Europe and we'd be all over the place, and then we'd go to Asia, and then. We could be all over the place, and I just seen McDonald's, and I was like, you know, a teenager, and it's like, wow, it's my first time being over here. They got McDonald's over here too, mm. and I just check it out, and I just had some amazing times on the road, you know, uh, in like the most majestic places, like in Florence, Italy, sitting in front of the Duomo eating McDonald's. <laughs> I just like, you know what I'm like at 3 a.m., yeah. you know, and like after like a long conversation uh, about life mm-hmm. and it's like I'm 19 and it's the first time that I've ever, like I'm seeing the world, yeah. but I'm eating this fast food from America. Mm. <laughs> it's just, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I've had some great meals, yeah. like some really great quality meals, but as far as memorable that's up in the top ten. What's your go-to McDonald's order? What, what do you like to have there? Oh my, you got to get the nuggets, man. <laughs> uh, you got to get the nuggets. I don't, I don't, I don't eat it too much. In yeah. fact, my my lady is always just like, um, it's like I can relapse. So she's always <laughs> like, we better watch. <laughs> we pass by McDonald's, talk to the driver, It'd be like, don't even show him. We're not going. But. uh you know, you got to get the nuggets with the barbecue sauce and the honey mustard. And then you get the sweet and sour sauce for the fries. Okay. So that's the three. Yeah. And then you could get a cheeseburger on the side. Then you set up. <laughs> well, uh, the album is Hollywood Africans. It is out September 28th. John Batiste, thank you so much for joining us. And now I'm going to go get McDonald's. Hey, nah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. 
I Think You're Interesting is also recorded in a dark room where everybody just closes their eyes and we hope for the best. And I am the executive producer and host of the show, Todd Vanderwerf, the one who has his eyes closed, his fingers crossed, and is just like, eh, this better work out. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. This week's episode was edited by Griffin Tanner. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. The sound designer is Miles Ewell. The logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week's studio was the Rebel Talk Network in Los Angeles. For me and John was at the Vox Media Podcast Studio in New York. Our recording engineer in New York was Srinivas Ramamurthy. And our recording engineer here in Los Angeles was Ernie Hurtado. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold. It helps us get the word out, helps us continue to get great guests. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com. If you have something you want to say that's not for public consumption, you can email us. You know, why not? And you can also tweet at me at TVOTI, that's Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with another guest from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture. Just, you know, somebody I think is interesting. And until then, I see trees of green, skies of blue. You know the rest. Just fill it in your head. You got it. you've got, don't stop. So with all you've got, don't stop. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smart water, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. So, hey, I want to turn you on to another really great podcast. Have you heard of Love It or Leave It? Do you listen to it? It's a podcast where John Lovett, you might know him as a host of Pod Save America or as a speechwriter for President Obama. He's got on comedians, journalists, celebrities, and activists. They do a roundup of the week's news. They play games. They bring on actors for dramatic readings. And they rant about everything from flight delays to Tom Cruise's stunts. John is hilarious. The show is a blast. And they have great guests like Sarah Silverman, Kumail Nanjiani, Senator Kristen Gillibrand, Aquafina, Jenny Slate, the great film critic Emily Yoshida has been on recently. So you've got to check this out. Go subscribe to Love It or Leave It on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite app. This is one of the really great coincidences since I've been doing this because we're talking to John Batiste this week, who's a great musician, and this week's episode of Vox's Netflix show Explained is Music Explained. So that is a really nice little uh, roundup. And I think you're going to like this episode. I really did. It's a 15 to 20 minute deep dive into the world of music. The episode digs into the deep connections between music and emotion and why we feel the way we do when we listen. And it made me really think about music, uh, which I'm a casual fan of, but I do love in a new way. So it explores the question of how does sound become something more? And it starts by showing how researchers study the difference between sound and music. And you're going to be amazed when you hear 
how that works. It also walks through the story of Toki Monsta, the famous producer and musician who lost her ability to hear music after having brain surgery and then regained it. And it's narrated by, drumroll, Carly Rae Jepsen. So make sure you check it out by searching for Explained or Vox on Netflix or going straight to netflix.com slash explained. 